Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to Keep our eyes on you this morning, open our ears, open our hearts, help us to learn from you, the one who is willing to walk all the way to the cross that we might have life, amen. So uh, have you seen any good political ads lately? (laughs) I know you've seen political ads, the question is have you seen any good ones? We have, uh, we have been bombarded. We are just being inundated by all the political uh, messaging and rhetoric during these days leading up to the November 8th midterm elections. I was in, my, in the waiting room of my eye doctor last week, and I just could not believe that it was just ad after ad after ad on TV. Jesus did not have to deal with ads like that. But Jesus lived in a very politically charged environment. Beginning last week, we've begun to take this uh, journey, make an exploration of our world and look at it compared to Jesus' world. We've seen that in so many ways, his world seems really different. His context seems very, very different than our own. And we've seen that there were also many, many similarities Jesus actually had a lot of encounters and interactions that would very closely mirror the kinds of interactions and adventures we have during the course of our week. Jesus lived in a world awash in religion and politics and pain, a world full of life and death situations, a world full of relationships that could be challenging or life-giving and often both at the same time. As we look at the world of Jesus, we see reflected one that helps us navigate ours as those who choose to follow his lead as Lord and Savior. Last week, we saw that context matters. It's really important, especially as we look at the gospel stories of Jesus and his life and his teachings. We need to understand what his context was. We recognize that if we don't pay attention to the context closely, we're likely to miss some points that are meant to be made, or we're, we're likely to rush to make some connections between his world and ours that maybe actually aren't there if we look more closely. But on the other hand, if we narrow in with such intense focus on the historical context of Jesus and politics and religion and narrow and narrow and narrow, we may miss the bigger picture and wider perspective that God has for us as we come to these accounts in the Gospels. Context matters, but it certainly doesn't necessarily dominate. And I think in a way that's, that's the point we'll see as we explore today the interaction between Jesus and politics, the political realities of his day. That we see Jesus walking this path where he said, yeah, context matters. This is a political world. But it should never dominate kingdom reality. Think of the account we just heard from from the Gospel of John, where Pilate said to Jesus, don't you understand how political power works? 
And Jesus seems to say, don't you understand how God's power works? Jesus lived in a context similar to our own in that political and religious and relational lines were often blurred and fuzzy. There were religious groups at that time who were vying for power within their own religions and within society at large. At the time of Jesus, religious groups who were otherwise divided would sometimes become allies against a common political enemy. We know that Jesus lived and taught in a setting, in a context of political occupation and oppression. In the year 63 BC, the Roman Empire had gained control over Jerusalem. They had uh, taken over all of Palestine, and that was the context leading up to the life and, and ministry of Jesus. The Roman Empire was interested in Palestine because it played a key role in them securing trade routes that they thought were important. But in general, they didn't necessarily want to meddle in the local affairs of what they often considered kind of a backwater area of their empire. And so the Caesars, the Roman emperors, had erected political systems in Palestine. They left a lot of the heavy lifting, including taxes, including uh, tasks like tax collection, to local leaders whom they empowered from among the Jewish people who were set up to do uh, their, those tasks. And so this not only allowed them to appease some of the Jewish people who found themselves in positions of power, but it especially allowed uh, a relative sense of peace and freedom because the Jews were given a fair amount of religious autonomy. They could continue to worship in a sense of the way they had wanted to do. And so the system allowed Rome to delegate much of the work that was required to keep the gears of the empire turning. And then finally, we see some brilliance in, in the structure of the Roman Empire here because they set up within these designated appointees rival factions. They gave different powers to different groups within the Jewish people, some to the Pharisees, some to the Sadducees, for example, and so they set up a system where the occupied and oppressed citizens, citizenry might actually be more likely to butt heads with one another than with their common oppressor. There are episodes in the Gospels in which these divided and bickering groups come to Jesus and present what they hope, what they intend will be a no-win situation. They present a no-win question at least it would be no win if Jesus were actually interested in keeping everybody happy. But we'll, we see that that's not the case. There are times when two groups of Jewish people came to Jesus and asked a question that regardless of the answer was gonna upset someone, and that was by design. Agreement with one group would automatically represent an affront and offense to the other. And this is the context of our passage this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 22, Matthew opens this account by having Jesus tell a story, tell a parable, and it's a parable that makes one group of the Jews, the Pharisees, look really bad. Jesus tells a parable about a banquet, a banquet that's thrown by a king, and in this banquet scene, we see that the people that are expected to show up and participate and enjoy this feast 
actually don't come. They're no-shows. And so the king widens the invitation and we see that the people who actually show up at this banquet are those whom spectators would assume have actually no right to be there. And the Pharisees, we're told, are actually quick enough on the uptake to identify themselves in that story. They recognize that they're the ones represented by the no-show guests. And they recognize this banquet table as the kingdom of God. And they hear the message, the point of the parable, that those who think they're going to be in the banquet might not be there after all. And so the Pharisees felt snubbed and were indignant. And then Matthew goes on to continue his account by saying the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And so we need to stop there because this is a strange, uh, a strange setup. It's an unusual uh, partnering in this, in this passage between the Pharisees and the Herodians. Because Pharisees could perhaps sum up their, their life mission with words like, the goal of life is to be good, to do good, and to honor God with everything that you have. And so certainly there would not be any room for them to share allegiance between God and anyone other than God, especially the Herods, the Caesars. But the Herodians, another sect of Judaism, as you can guess from their name, were those who actually were uh, in sympathy with Herod Antipas, the one, the kind of the puppet uh, Jewish leader who had been installed by the Caesar. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee, where Jesus lived and taught, conducted most of his ministry. And so these Herodians kind of liked the structure that was set up and ended up having pro-Rome inclinations. So therefore, the Herodians and the Pharisees were not on good terms at all. And Matthew makes it clear that the only reason that they're traveling together that day was to set a trap for Jesus. Let's uh, continue in verse 17. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Do you hear the sound of serious sucking up here? Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So somehow, as only he could, Jesus turns this attempted gotcha moment into an opportunity for amazement. The trap that had been set for Jesus in this case had been devised so that one of Jesus' interrogators would have something to stick to Jesus, a gotcha to say, see, we can pin this on him. We can show that he's wrong. 
The plan was that either Jesus would say something that would seem to indicate that the Jews' Roman overlords should be fully recognized and fully honored, in which case the Pharisee would say, there you go, he's dishonoring God. Or Jesus would say that taxes didn't need to be paid, in which case the Herodian could label Jesus an insurrectionist. And instead, Jesus asks for a coin. Jesus sees right through the trap that had been set for him. He says, you know what? Instead of bothering trying to trap me in my words, how about you step back and and learn something today? And he uses an object lesson. He asks for a coin. I love that Jesus had to ask for a coin. Somehow it seems consistent with our image of Jesus that he didn't carry a lot of cash on him. (laughs) Whose image is on this coin, Jesus asks them, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now what's interesting here, as as, uh, Jesus' interrogators that day had to hand over the coin, even, even in their handling of it, they would have come face to face with the claims of that coin. Jesus makes a point to ask about the image and the inscriptions. On one side, there would have been an image of the emperor's head, along with the offensive inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. An inscription that claimed that Caesar was born of a god and then therefore must be divine himself. On the other side of the coin was the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which to a Jewish understanding would mean high priest. Again, highly offensive. Biblical commentator D.A. Carson unpacks Jesus' answer this way. On the surface, Jesus' answer accords with Jewish teaching that people ought to pay their taxes, even to foreign overlords, since those in power, even pagans, owe their position to God. But Jesus' answer is more profound and can be fully understood only in the light of relations between religion and state in the first century Roman Empire. Because the Jews, with their sense that God himself was their king, were ill-equipped to formulate a theological rationale for paying tribute to foreign and pagan overlords unless, just like the Jews in the time of exile to Babylon, they interpreted their situation as one of divine judgment. So he's saying that the Jews at this time, if they were somehow able to look back 600 years or so and say, hey, this is kind of a Babylon moment. We can look back now. We can look back with 2020 vision and see that what God was doing when we were hauled out of our nation and brought to Babylon and then eventually rescued and reestablished. We see that God had his hand in that. We see that God had a purpose and an intention. But that's not the sense that they shared about their current situation under Roman occupation. They wanted deliverance, and they wanted it now. So the Pharisees' part of this trap included the intention to make it look like Jesus, if he agreed that taxes should be paid, was actually saying that the nation of Israel and the Jewish people deserved what they were getting. 
Carson continues, seen in this light, Jesus' response is not some witty way of getting out of a predicament. Rather, it shows his full awareness of a major development in redemption history. Jesus does not side with anyone who would expect that his messiahship would bring instant political independence from Rome. The messianic community that Jesus determines to build must render to Caesar whatever is due to Caesar while never turning from its obligations to God. So Jesus' goal in this interaction, his goal with his inquisitors is not to wriggle out of a trap, but to teach the truth. And part of that truth is that while political realities matter and have implications, often significant implications, political realities should never, never dominate the lives of those called by God's name and seeking to honor God with their whole lives. Political context matters, says Jesus, but should never dominate. And as Jesus gives his two-part answer to this intended trap, I believe the first part is actually meant to be kind of matter of fact. It's as if Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If you owe taxes, fine, pay them. Take care of what you need to do. But the second part of Jesus' answer, I believe, is intended to be chewed on rather thoughtfully. As he says, give to God what is God's. That second instruction, I think, is meant to get his, his listeners thinking deeply that day. And we, we hear that they do leave in amazement. Maybe they got the message. Maybe they weren't just marveling at his ability to, to get free from the trap they had set for him. Maybe they heard in Jesus' teaching that their perspective had become skewed or warped, that they ought to actually be paying more attention to what is due to God in their lives. And I think this is the question that we are left to ponder this morning. What do we have that is actually due to be given to God. God doesn't levy a tax on us, but we do have responsibilities to live our lives in a way that, that reflect that we've been given the name of God himself, that we've been called by his name and, and bought at great price by the blood of Jesus Christ, those of us who have chosen to follow him as Lord and Savior. Later in this same chapter, Matthew describes that there were actually more tests and traps that the people put to Jesus. And one of them was the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so when Jesus was talking about giving God what is due to God, this is, I believe, what he meant. That what is due to God is our love with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Love for God that ends up reflecting in love for neighbor. Neighbor whom we actually choose to love as nearly and dearly as ourselves. 
It's in this context that we consider Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's as if Jesus is holding up to us political realities of our lives and the spiritual reality of our lives. He's asking us to, to compare them in our minds, to consider the relative, relative magnitude, and to see if perhaps our perspective has become skewed. Jesus invites us, think about your political context, your political reality. reality. Think about what you need to do and do it. And think about your spiritual context, your spiritual reality. Consider deeply what you need to do and do it. Especially as one who claims to honor God with your life. Jesus leaves it to those listening that day to consider their own understanding of the relative importance, magnitude of our political and spiritual contexts. To understand our political responsibilities and our responsibilities to, to God himself, the one who calls us. To God himself, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who's called us by name. And so may we be people who sit with those same questions. And I, I pray for us, especially in these politically charged weeks ahead, that if we are tempted in any way to see our political context and political reality as, as dominant, that God would shape our hearts and our minds, that Jesus would nudge us toward a wider view and a renewed perspective. I pray that when we find ourselves caught up maybe anxiously worrying over the outcome of the upcoming elections or the political structures in our context. We would keep our eyes on a Messiah who, for reasons sometimes beyond our own understanding, chose not to put political context and structures into upheaval, but instead to usher in a new kingdom and a new way of life. If we're tempted to put our faith in political leaders, may we be reminded who is truly our master. If we're tempted to resist and revolt against political structures or outcomes, may God himself give us patience and humility and perspectives so that we can keep our eyes focused on him, our hearts focused on God, on loving God, on loving our neighbors. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, our teacher and savior, would you, would you give us today the gift of proper perspective? Would you show us any way we may have become bogged down in our political context? Ways we may have placed too much hope in politics or spent too much energy on resistance? Would you remind us again that you call us to follow you unencumbered, wholeheartedly, with all that we are, with devotion to you and never to a political system. Teach us how to be good citizens in our context and especially how to be faithful citizens of your kingdom. Show us, Jesus, how to give to God what truly belongs to God alone. Amen.